The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with our TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. All righty. Did you have any favorite TV moments from the past week? I really liked this week's episode of Finding Carter. I oh. feel like this is like a weird, it's not even like that good a show, but it has uh, some of my favorite family casting. I think the siblings look and act like siblings without seeming twinish, mm-hmm. even though two of the characters are fraternal twins. It's about a girl who was kidnapped but didn't know that. And so she, as a teenager, discovers that the person she thought was her mother is actually her abductor. It's very face-on-the-milk-carton-esque. But I think it plays pretty hard with big emotional moments. And it has a go-for-it attitude that I think a teen soap needs to have. I don't think you get very far by holding back on that kind of show. And so, you know, to have the nice guy boyfriend be just really nice is, is a treat i think he's a really Mm -hmm. fun character and to have so the two sisters you know the one who was abducted and the one who wasn't have an important conflict with like who gets to be sort of the golden child and and i thought this this week's episode had a really fun they got drunk and everyone was a mess and it was just like a good way to depict that kind of heightened teen emotion and i thought a pretty decent honest relatable way i like that show (laughs) This is maybe somewhat belated, but the Frank Sinatra, the two-part Frank Sinatra Mm. documentary by Alex Alex Gibney. Gibney. I'm just a Sinatra obsessive. I find him so interesting musically, but also just as as a personality because he's so... I don't know. Maybe it's connected in some way to the fact that Mad Men's back on the air. But you know, not only <laughs> yeah. not only is he uh, very much of that era, the '60s, in addition to the '40s and '50s, but but also he's got that quality of being sort of a monster, but also very admirable at the same time. And you just have to reconcile mm-hmm. those two things in your head. What about you? I I loved the cold open on Louis last week. The poop scene. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It was just, I feel like we don't have enough poop humor on prestige (laughs) television. And I I thought it was great. I thought it was hilarious and kind of a sweet moment between him and his daughters as well. Yeah. And it's it's nice to see Louis being like funny like that. It did seem kind of old school. Yeah. So this week we are going to talk about Sunday night's episode of Mad Men. And at the end of the show, we'll answer some questions from you, our listeners, as well. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So on, on this episode of Mad Men, we had a number of things happening. Joan meets a new suitor and begins dating him, and they seem to fall hard for each other. The next-door neighbor from earlier seasons, Glenn, is back. His weird dynamic with Betty still intact. And Mathis has a meltdown in the office and gets fired. Let's start with Joan. She mentioned she's been divorced twice. And can you jog our memory on that first one, Margaret? Sure. So everyone remembers Greg, her rapist husband who went to Vietnam and is a monster. But we don't find out until season six in the episode um, To Have and To Hold. I think it's Mm -hmm. called, where Joan's friend from childhood or college visits and they go to that like telephone at your table diner and then they go to a club. While they're at that diner, the waiter comes over and Joan is rolling her eyes and is like, this place is for teenagers. What are we doing here? And her friend is like, oh, I heard there's 
action to be had for women of our age. Like, chill out. And the waiter comes over and he's sort of flirting with them. And Joan's friend says, wow, he reminds me of Scotty. And Joan says, just don't marry him. And her friend makes a joke and she says that it was the worst six months of my life. And her friend says, well, you always did everything first. And Joan says, well, you always did everything smart. So I think it's a pretty clear mm-hmm. moment that, that Joan had a brief marriage a long time ago. But I think that's the only reference we had okay. to it before that. I think it just suddenly struck me how many divorces have happened on this show. Like Don has had two. I didn't realize Joan had. Don has had, had three. Technically, yeah. Don has had three. That's right. We're I mean, three two now. real right. ones, but. But also, he is divorced from Anna in a certain sense. Right. right. Roger has had two. Pete has had one. I mean, Betty has had one as well. I never really thought of the 60s as a time when people were divorcing so much, but maybe it was kind of the first time in well, history. Well, I think it also depends were... on the it depends on the social class. Like I think it like the the sort of upper middle to upper class East Coast mm-hmm. group that we see on this show a little more common than it would be in say my home state of Texas in a small town, you know? I would also bet that everyone Peggy knows who's divorced, she knows from work. Yeah. And everyone she knows from Brooklyn who's a practicing Catholic is not divorced. Right, exactly. Right, so one of the Mm -hmm. things is that our characters on Mad Men have very little attachment to any anti-divorce sentiment from a religious background. Right. These are not particularly religious characters. Which is somewhat of an anomaly for that time and place. Like, that's a little oasis of it's okay to be divorced. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. I'm sure Peggy's mom would be very put off by it, right? Yeah. And there's also, I think there's also a tendency to, um, you know, when we buy into the official story of American society in the 20th century, we think of the 60s and 70s as a time when all of a sudden everybody was having sex and divorce became common. But in fact, these two things predated the 60s. You know, and I feel like that's something like we maybe it wasn't as accepted, but certainly I know. You know, in my own family, there was a hell of a lot of divorce that predates the 60s. Like, if you go back through the timeline. So I feel like they're being honest about that. (laughs) But I think in general, because, and we've talked about this before, that Mad Men's not a show that puts a particular primacy on romantic love. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things it likes to explore is all the ways in which romantic love is a fallacy. (laughs) What was that line from this week? Jesus, not love again. What was that that Don says? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, are we saying love again? Or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what do you think Joan is, is looking for? She's always been kind of a more elusive figure to me than most. They showed a clip before the episode started, like recently on Mad Men, of her and Bob Benson. And she's saying that she wants love. So I guess she is kind of looking for love. She is kind of looking yeah. for love. And she's also like a lot of the women on the show under tremendous pressure to just get married already. Yeah. And uh, I feel that. But one of the things I always liked about Joan was that she was in her way and partly because of the hard experiences that she's been through holding out for the right guy mm-hmm. and being very wary of guys who seemed like the right guy but were giving off warning signs. And that's one of the areas in which I feel like she's been a little bit smarter than Peggy. Like the relationships we've seen Peggy be in, I've often felt like danger, Will Robinson, danger a lot of the time. And she stayed on him for you know, a long time for somebody who theoretically is more enlightened and free of that sort of thing than Joan. I guess if you had to be married to Abe or Greg, wouldn't you pick Abe? (laughs) Oh, sure. (laughs) So, I mean, Greg is a monster. And obviously this is not um, an indictment of people who stay with their abusers. That's a very complicated dynamic. And certainly Joan is in an impossible situation. She has... You know, she feels like she can't go back on her decision to marry him. And then throughout their marriage, it's just never that happy. Remember, he makes her play the accordion and it's this like very humiliating moment. She doesn't want to. They have 
a lot of physical fights. They do. But she initially was drawn to him because she fell in love with him, right? Yes. She, before, we actually don't see that much of their courtship, right? Like, I, I think we know that she has... I think maybe the first time we really see him is after they've gotten engaged. Yeah. I do want to clarify, though, before we go on. I'm not trying to say that Abe is necessarily... Uh, Worse. What I I mean is, I mean more in the sense of that great Sopranos episode, um, University, where we're contrasting, you know, two forms of abusive relationships, one of which is kind of traditionally monstrous with the, you know, the mobster and his stripper girlfriend. But you also see Meadow and her college boyfriend, which is a very upper middle class sort of talk based microaggression based kind of <laughs> yeah. dominance and like the way that they parallel them it, it just drives home the point that a lot of times what we think is a liberal enlightened view of of a relationship is maybe not as liberal and enlightened as people who are in it like to think sure yeah i also think we have to think about i think the show framed roger as joan's great love in mm-hmm. some ways and what's interesting is we are seeing roger raise a little boy now right i think yeah. the last time we saw roger's grandson he's sitting on Roger's lap. They're watching the moon landing. It's Roger and his ex-wife and his former son-in-law, because Roger's daughter is on the commune. I don't know if they're divorced or what, but it did seem like Roger was taking a sort of parenting rewind moment, right? So so this guy that was going to be Joan's guy, or could have been, and she said no and changed her mind, and, you know, there was a point when they were both single. They could have gotten together, like, in the open. Um... This Richard, her new suitor, he's not not Roger, right? There's a lot of things about him that are very Roger-esque. Certainly this sort of lavish hotel stuff we know is a big part of Roger Mm -hmm. and Joan's affair. Like the way they were like giggling and stuff. And he doesn't look nothing like Roger, right? He has this Mm -hmm. like silver fox thing. He's debonair. He's very wealthy. There's all these ways in which he's like Roger, but... Socially conservative, in his opinions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Really railing, demanding. The hippie, extremely... Railing about the hippies and yeah. trying to interfere with this golf course. To me, it was you know meant to echo aspects of her relationship with Roger and yeah. then to, mm-hmm. s- to see what what's different when you start out on more equal footing, right? Right. right. Where she's never, she's never going to be Richard's secretary. And certainly when he met her, she thought for a moment that she was going to be offering him a job. Right. Yes. So they mm-hmm. start off in a very different dynamic. And so to see Joan kind of get a do over for some of these parts of her relationship with Roger that she didn't like or wouldn't want to do again, I think is interesting. I loved all those scenes um, between the two of them because they reminded me of that line from one of my favorite Chris Rock routines about dating where he says, when you go out on a first date with somebody, you're not meeting them, you're meeting their representative. Well, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, and like mm-hmm. and I like that, like the first time we see this guy, he's lying about who he is. He's literally <laughs> lying about who he is. And it's in a jokey way. It's like in a jokey, playful, I, I just want to be close to you, babe, kind of way. But he's still misrepresenting himself. Sure. And then there's all of these like actual lies and sort of omissions and dancing around things. And, and then at a certain point, everybody has to say, OK, let's put all our cards on the table and see what we've actually got here. And I like the way that story resolves itself, too. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cheesy, but it's like, this is what acting's for, right? Yeah. That this The way that when you saw them together, you're like, ooh, something special, right? <laughs> and the way that like, when he apologizes, it's like, I bought it, right? He did yeah. genuinely seem mm-hmm. sorry and that you could kind of imagine he seems genuinely that, to her. that being like a real moment of panic and frustration and then being humiliated by your bad behavior and wanting to apologize the way a grown-up could. I That's think- a classic Mad Men moment. Actually, that that moment where she leaves the hotel room and he cut to his face and he's realizing like he's realizing what a lot of the characters on the show realize long after they're able to do anything to correct their mistake, which is 
I have a code. I have a set of beliefs. But if you, <laughs> but if you're too rigid about clinging to them, you ruin a lot of chances for happiness. He was too rigid about his lack of rigidity. He was exactly. That's a <laughs> I great do way also think it. he's incredibly reminiscent of Tom Selleck's Richard character on Friends. Oh, it's yeah. the exact same thing. Of like, I love kids. I had kids. I raised my kids, and I'm oh not going to do it again. And it's. These lines even are very similar. That um, seems like a perfectly, as somebody who has <laughs> has raised two kids, I totally understand that point of view. It's oh, like sure. I, you know, I, I mean, put my yeah. time, I did my time at the office and I'm done now. No, know? I think that's a completely reasonable attitude to have. But yeah. to see those very strong echoes from characters with the same name who are presented as these, like, vibrant, interesting, like, silver fox, mm-hmm. like... Sexy dad I guys. I love thinking like, of him in that light. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, oh, I've seen this story. Where have I seen? Oh, right, on Friends. <laughs> yeah, that I could have. I probably could have done without that Mister Furley outfit that he's wearing in that one scene. I mean, scene. the oh, scarf, the, jewelry. the the Scooby Doo scarf is not for me. And then, <laughs> like when they're in bed and he's wearing more jewelry than Joan is. Yeah, it's like Joan. Don't marry that bracelet. <laughs> that is a bad bracelet. Yeah, like that is. I did like not it. Great. Emily Newsbaum's comment: "Don't don't marry him, Joan. He lacks the foresight to buy property on 12th Street." <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about Betty and Glenn's relationship and sideshow like... Bob? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could talk a lot of bit about Ooh. Betty and Glenn's relationship. I mean, it it feels like the show has kind of neglected Betty's storyline. Not neglected, but she's not as big of a part of the show as she was early on. I just feel like I have to represent for my dad here who Mm -hmm. believes that Betty should no longer be a character on the show at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there are plenty of people who feel that Betty has been more than well represented um, and that her storylines have been, certainly after she and Don got divorced, have still played, for many fans' taste, too large a role in the show. But initially she was at least almost as important as Don. Oh, sure, absolutely. And that makes sense when... They're married. But I think once they're divorced, I don't know how much Betty and Henry time. Right. Yeah, not a lot. But but, but I think she's still interesting in relation to Sally and Don. And as a sense of um, these are the two main forces that shape Sally. And I think that that final scene in the Greyhound station in this most recent episode, for me, retroactively justified all the Betty stuff. Like if we didn't actually see Betty mm-hmm. interacting with Sally without Don... So that we could sense all the ways in which Sally and Don were similar or at the very least, you know, well suited to each other in the worst possible way. That scene by the bus would not have had as much impact because you couldn't you would have had to essentially take Don's word for it or take Sally's word for it. If that hadn't happened, would you have felt bringing back Glenn was too forced of a move in terms of his relationship with Betty? Probably. But, you know, Mad Men's the kind of show where so much of everything that happens is literal but also theoretical. You know, mm-hmm. like like there's a metaphorical or symbolic dimension to everything that happens on the show. And this episode, particularly the last three, really, have seemed like they're as much testing a set of propositions as they are telling a story or trying to advance the, the narratives of any individual characters. And, and on this, this episode, it's so much about disappointment and fear of the future and the choices that we make in order to justify doing something, anything. Like, we don't even care what it is anymore. And, and Glenn... Did we need Glenn? Probably not. You know, did we need, what's his name, Richard uh, Jones' new beau? Probably not. I mean, I guess probably not is the answer to the question, do we need X? You know, Mm -hmm. but they're in the story, and I felt felt like they all reflected each other. And definitely the stuff between Glenn and uh, Betty 
pays off again in that scene between Sally and Don at the bus station right after she's seen her friend flirting with her dad. And you really do get a sense of, as she puts it, you know, you, I, what does she say? You, like, you, you ooze out yeah. or something. I can't remember <laughs> the wording. It's a nasty, like, almost kind of horror movie way to put it. So watching Sally and Betty and Glenn together is one thing. I think watching the when Glenn returns mm-hmm. to the Draper residence... I'm not even convinced that that's real, right? Like, I'd buy that that was actually Betty's sort of fantasy of that there's this moment and she can't and that's how she's justifying all this because no one else is there. We don't see anyone else interact with him. And it also just has, like, a real quality of bafflement to it. I don't know if that's some of the performance. I don't think these are the strongest acting partners for one another. No, Um, that's that's putting it diplomatically. So the sort of artificiality of it, I can't tell if that's a byproduct of a lack of acting juju or if that's like a, a choice because it, it I mean it was so awkward right in addition to being yeah. creepy and gross and weird there was just like a oh is that would you really put that kid's hand on your face like he's so dirty looking <laughs> and Betty's so pristine and then you know don't tell me you're doing this for me when it's like doesn't Betty want everyone to do everything for right. and her he's like some, no I'm not <laughs> at some point so there was a weird, I don't know, detached quality to that scene for me. But I yeah. think, obviously, we see, you know, the triangulation of, of Sally and her friend and her parent. And also, I, th- it's not clear if Sally has a crush on Glenn. I think there are some points where she might, if they have... It's not quite a brother-sister relationship. I think there is a little bit of jealousy. that I think Sally does kind of have a crush on Glenn. When she says to the girlfriend, did you convince him to do this? And she's like, oh, I just met him. Yeah, um, I took no. that as almost being more of a sisterly sort of protectiveness. I mean, when they when she, like, prospies at the boarding school and they call Glenn and he goes off and makes out with her friend, yeah. she's a little bit frustrated by that. And yes. then she gets, you know, paired yeah. up with Glenn's friend and she's like, right. ugh. Right. right? So I think there is, like, some history of... There's an aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, they when they go to the museum together when they're kids and Sally gets her period, yeah. right? I mean, there's, a, like... In, a, in any close relationship, if you have a close guy friend and you're that close, there will be that twinge of like, oh, you're like my person kind of, yeah. you know? Yeah. One of the really strong moments, and I think Kiernan Shipka does this a lot, the way her eyes were darting back and forth between Betty and Glenn, and she's just as like, oh, yes. this is so loud and clear. This is appalling to me. And then watching her do it again with her Don with and Don Sarah. And, yeah. Being able to do the same thing in a slightly different way and have her at that moment recognize what's happening and also lay it on top of the idea that she has of, of Betty and Glenn in her head from just a couple of days before for her to have that repeat moment. Um, it was important for her character. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I just thought that was beautifully done. I think Sally comes across sometimes as sulky and it's just like you would be, too. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Mathis tells Don earlier in the episode something like how he's handsome and has no character. And then Don later kind of imparts some advice to Sally being like, you know, you're pretty and you're going to have to work to be more than that. Have we heard Don talk about his looks before or feel kind of held back by them in any way? Mm, I mean, I, did, I felt like it so was Not in so many words, surprising. but other people have certainly brought it mm-hmm. up. I mean, Roger brings it up a lot. Yeah. I think Pete has also at some points. Cutler says to him in the, in the previous season, you're just a football player in a suit. I mean, I think there's no way that the other characters don't think about that or acknowledge that, right? It's part of his, that's part of the Don Draper treatment, as Bobby Barrett put it, right? Right, Right. exactly. That's what enables him to be in that, in Pete's phrase, Tarzan swinging from vine to vine. Yeah. You know, if you don't look like Tarzan, you can't get away with that. (laughs) But I think this whole episode was about everything flipping, right? And so the kids are acting like they're grown-ups, and the grown-ups are acting like the kids, and we're going to have this 
cookie campaign where kids write Dear John letters? That's well, not appropriate. And it, I know. That's I not, love that. That's not and what kids P- do, and right? It's, and it's Peter Pan, for God's sake. Right. I mean, you know? could there be more on the nose? Right. Um, and then also it was just like, all it takes is one tink. It's like, what is that supposed to refer to? <laughs> yeah. Is that a kid s- slogan? That to me feels odd. And so we have all these kids acting like grown-ups, grown-ups acting like kids. And then suddenly yeah. we have Mathis acting like Don, and that's wrong too, right? So write something like the Gettysburg Address, which is famously like 200 and something words, And right? written on the back of an envelope in haste, right, uh, but, according to legend. But so, I mean, not legend. It is under 300 words. Yes, yes, And so yes. to be like, right, like the Gettysburg Address, but 2,500 words is a very different, but it's like, that's well, not like the Gettysburg that, Address. that throwaway moment with Sally <laughs> with the American Express traveler's checks oh, yeah. where Betty is, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about signatures and the idea of a signature, you know, you sign the front of the check so that when you sign the back of the check, it's they see that you're, it's the same signature and that's how they know it's you. It's like, well... That's really not what you call that's a foolproof a, that's system. That's a very good plan. And Betty <laughs> you know, can't bear to – Betty but, has no answer. I'm not sure there is a very good answer. But no. And, and she's also, like, they have you know, it worked out. And that traveler's check, you know, the once you turn it over and sign the back of it, that's Don Draper's entire life. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, it's very intricately worked out, this show. Well, it's the, you don't have to prove you're really you. You just have to prove you're the same you that you said you were. Exactly. In this episode, you know, with Don's um, real estate agent mm-hmm. talking about – what a dump his apartment is and no one wants your failure sack or whatever. Um, and then <laughs> and then Don saying, tell them like a Frisbee. He's just imagining this, the most opposite thing of what he is. Yeah. Of someone invented something very carefree and like that brings joy to a family. Yes. And when he says great things happened here. It's like, I don't, yeah, well, that was I'm my not first. Sure what you're referring to? My, my first thought was name one. Yeah, it was like the biggest one would be Zuby Zuby Zoo, but he didn't even like that. No, he was very uncomfortable he with that because it made him feel old. Well, it was and also they, when people sing on Mad Men, we like see their true self, and he saw Megan's true self, and it was so much more vibrant than he realized, and he just couldn't handle it, and he knew yeah. he couldn't, and that to me was like when things. When that was pretty early on. Yeah, that was the first season premiere episode of season, of season five. five. Yeah, that was when. I think the sort of wheels started turning up. This is not going to work out the way I thought No, it was. and I think the very next scene involving Don is him staring into space in the bathroom mirror like he's, you know, looking at the Grail Knight from Last Crusade. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, who is this old man I see before me? Yeah. There are two um, F words that kind of come up in this episode, both like literally we hear Sally say the F word, which is bleeped out, and we hear that Mathis had said it in a meeting. Right. And then the word future is repeated a lot. And the episode's called Forecast. Oh, right. Right. We have a clip here of Don and Peggy discussing Peggy's future. What do you see for the future? Well, um, is that on there? No, I'm just curious. I'd like to be the first woman creative director at this agency. That's funny to you? No, I'm impressed that you know exactly. What else is there? That's what I'm asking. Let's say you get that. What's next? Land something huge. And then? Have a big idea. Create a catchphrase. So you want fame? Yes. What else? I don't know. Yes, you do. Create something of lasting value. (laughs) In advertising. 
This is supposed to be about my job, not the meaning of life. So you think those things are unrelated? There's kind of that echo of the, is that all there is? He's like, is that all? Is that all? Is that all? Yes, that's the unofficial second theme song for this season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That song. I was kind of found myself wondering if Don, does he think a job is something that has brought meaning to his life? Or do we see him kind of struggling to figure that out right now and asking other people to answer it? I think it's definitely brought one kind of meaning to his life, which is, you know, as Ted puts it, you're very good at painting a picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's treated his own life as a blank canvas, and he's sort of drawn a new picture on it, and, and it looks like Don Draper, this advertising whiz kid. And, uh, you know, yay for him. He's He's been very successful. He's gained a certain amount of fame. He's won some awards, and he is able to afford a gigantic apartment and all of that. But uh, is that all there is? That's the question. I was thinking a lot about science fiction and the role that science fiction plays on the show as a, as a driver of the plot and sometimes as an anchor for the plot. I mean, there have mm-hmm. been characters who have written or tried to write science fiction. There have been, you know, episodes like the monolith that are directly invoking classic science fiction films. And Planet of the Apes played a role in another one. One of the things that we always hear about science fiction, visionary sci-fi often struggles with the ending of its story where you're supposed to take people to a place that they've never seen before and the problem with that is the human mind cannot conceive of that which has not already been conceived like we're never truly going to see anything new and that's why mm-hmm. the most effective visionary sci-fi is something like 2001 or close encounters where they go right up to the edge of a miracle but they don't actually show you the miracle like they show you sort of abstract signifiers of the miracle because if you go any further than that, then you run into a situation like the end of Contact or Interstellar. It's yeah. like, it's your damn father! You know, now I'm doing <laughs> yeah. South Park, but you know what I mean. And that plays back into Mad Men for me in all of these scenes of Roger asking Don to consider the future, paint a picture of the future, and have it be um, recognizable but also dazzling and perfect for the circumstances. And then he goes to try to get other people at the firm to talk to him so that he can come up with ideas for this. And all the answers they're giving them are either incredibly mundane and concrete, like I want to get a pharmaceutical company as a client, or they're so vague as to be meaningless. Like, you know, I want to... I want to invent I want to have a bold new idea. I want to come up with a great new concept. Well, what does that mean? And as soon as you get into the specifics of it, then suddenly it becomes mundane again. Mm-hmm. Is that all there is? Well, especially this episode calls back a lot to the season 3 finale, Shut the Door Have a Seat. Maybe yeah. it's Close the Door Have a Seat, I can't remember. And Don even asks his secretary to pull the memo that they wrote at the end of that episode when they formed Sterling Cooper Draper yeah. Price. Right. He says it's from uh, December 63, right? And that's also in the episode where Don goes to Peggy's apartment and and asks her to come work for him, him again. And they're both crying. And she's like, if I say no, you'll never talk to me. And he says, no, I'd, I'd spend the rest of my life begging you to come back. And that's a point where Don is asking everyone what they want for the future. And he has a very clear idea of what he wants. He wants to buy the firm back and then they can do the work they want to do. And he's very dazzled by this idea of they'll land a big client that, you know, I believe it was an airline that they were sort of aiming for. I don't remember. So Don has done this exact thing before of tell us what the future will be and bang it out in a memo and get Peggy to come along and ask Joan what she, th- you know, rally the troops. We're doing this. And I mean, they're doing that to avoid being bought by McCann Erickson. Well, and, and so, it's very consistent. And that's very what, is, that's that what has come to pass is that they, they wound up they're all their machinations to avoid that process. Then they kind of gave up on them because it was just so much money. I mean, other reasons, but mostly that. Yeah. So I think watching Don ask everyone, you know, what do you want for the future? 
and telling Sally to write it down, right? Because you might be right. a grown up and forget. That's another instance of the the wrong thing, right? Kids aren't supposed to decide what grown ups want. What you're saying here is reminding me of how often on the show Don's Hail Mary passes, his pitches that miraculously save the day. They're supposed to be forward looking, but ultimately they look back to the past. They, you know, the carousel mm-hmm. pitch being the most obvious example, but a lot of his. Pitches involve childhood memories, nostalgia, the ache from an old wound, and that kind of thing. Sure, and, Hershey's, Glow Coat. I mean, Glow Coat yeah. is his most famous commercial. That's a mom and a kid. We know Don was never in a room where his mom was cleaning a floor. Right. right? That's the image he has of what he wants childhood to look like. When he tells the Hershey's pitch, and everyone loves it, then when he tells the real, her, real Hershey's pitch of... I was like, (laughs) which you really can't be used to sell anything but antidepressants. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and even when he's trying to tell Mathis what to do, he's like, "Remember this one time I was awesome, right?" Right? (laughs) Um, To the science fiction idea, I think we probably identify Ken as the strongest sort of standing for science fiction, but I actually think it's Ginsburg because he. He has this whole really beautiful monologue about how I, he's a Martian. Yes. Um, and are there others like you? And I and just I got one message, and it was stay where you are. I, I mean, it becomes much more haunting in the context of what we know actually is happening with Ginsburg, and ret- right. like that we can sort of retroactively look at this the monologue. The computer's turning them all homo. <laughs> right. Yeah. So once we see Ginsburg have like a major psychotic break, um, yeah. then suddenly his sort of dreamy qualities come into relief, and we see that this is an instance of profound psychosis and not just sort of a daydreamy attitude but that monologue and it's it's set in a way that few monologues are on Mad Men in that it goes over a montage we don't see that a lot we see a lot of montages but usually Mm -hmm. it's to music and not to some one person's idea so we have Ginsburg sets up this idea of profound literal alienation that's something that Mad Men explores a lot this feeling of deep loneliness I thought there was a part of me that when Don kept insisting Peggy say what she really wanted I thought he was pushing her to say get married or I like have so a too. baby there was just I, I like thought... this moment uh, of is that what he's asking her right now Cause, and because she was also like I never wait felt I thought like we were that was where he job. was going with that I felt like he was pushing to sort of sink a harpoon into the unknowable and haul it onto the boat so that he can add it to his memo I really felt like that was ultimately mm. all it was about I feel like Don and I know a lot of people have complained about Don over the years Don is uh, continues to be a bit of an enigma. You don't always know what he wants or what his emotions or thought processes are. But I feel like you know, as people used to say of Ronald Reagan, even if you don't know, even if you don't, even if what he's saying doesn't make any sense, you know what he means. <laughs> and that's that's the impression that I got from these scenes. Like I felt like he didn't know what he was fishing for, but but mm. he would know it once he caught it. Oh, he definitely doesn't know what he's fishing for. That's yeah. why he's fishing, right? Yeah, If he yeah, knew yeah. what he was fishing for, it'd be called hunting or something, right? right? Or, like, or it would be, a, you know, it would be an interrogation. Yeah, I, I yeah. think he doesn't know. If you know. already know the answer to the question. He doesn't need to ask everyone. Right. It's more that it was how Peggy read it, I think. And those are things that are on her mind, you know? These sure. other things. So that's what she starts to suspect that he's asking, even though that's more just what's going on in her head, maybe. Yeah, and the things that she mentions as being her fantasies are uh, quite substantial. Yeah. Quite substantial. And also there are things that Don himself has aspired to and at various points insisted that Peggy aspired to. to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that having the big idea and having something of lasting value or creating something of lasting value. Obviously when Don thinks about that, that's why he's so struck by Sally's aversion to him, because Sally is for whatever else it's worth, the thing he's created of lasting value, right, are his right. children in mm-hmm. some level. And right. when Sally says, I don't want to be like you, I'm not like you, Don has to reckon with what kind of value, A, he was able to impart 
and B, that she was going to have to reject over the course of her life. There are so many great callbacks in this episode to previous plot lines, previous episodes, including uh, the bit at the end where you see the two sons rushing through the kitchen playing war, which reminds us of that great scene with Sally's grandfather. Um, yeah. And uh, Although I will say that really struck me because Gene Draper is seven. Yeah. He's, it's 1970. He was born in 1963. That kid was, like, in diapers. Right. Like, Gene Draper is too young. Bobby Draper is too young. Those kids, we know how old they are. I don't know why they are, have stayed such little kids well, as Sally has matured. And Glenn, we know Glenn is 18 now. Okay, well, then how is Bobby still nine? <laughs> and Bobby, the actor, doesn't look like he's aged at all. How no. many? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think they've taken a whole lot of care with uh, uh, maintaining consistency on any of the children except for Sally and Glenn. Given the level of, of de- finesse mm-hmm. and perfection devoted to every molecule of the show, well. it's irritating to me that this is one point where we don't see that at all. It would require them having to develop the characters more. They, yeah, they and God forbid, to. take time away from the main <laughs> which is which is something I'm I'm really getting frustrated with the complaints about this season. And, and they've actually been the complaints about a lot of seasons. And there have been points during the run of Mad Men where my normal infatuation with the show has given way to exasperation, where it's like, why are we going down this path? Why are we going down this path? Where are we going to go? But I want to say a few words in defense of this final stretch of episodes. And I guess it's advancing a theory, maybe, which is this is not a climax. I think the climax of the show, if you look at all seven seasons of the show, is essentially a long movie or a novel, which is the way people who create these shows like you to talk about them. I think the (laughs) climax was Waterloo. I think what we're seeing now is... Can you remind us what Waterloo is? That's the one where um, Burt Cooper dies Mm -hmm. at the same time that the moon landing is happening. And and Don has a hallucination of him singing and dancing. And that feels to me like the peak. Like, that's the peak of everything, including the 60s. That's the summer of 1969, the last moment of probably unadulterated national and international joy at a time of great strife and violence and misery, and and even even the counterculture's ideals were falling apart. And Summer of Love was going to eventually be replaced by Altamont, and and um, that seems to me like an ending. That seems like the the proper ending for all of this. And what we're seeing now is more an afterward. Like I feel like it's an extended afterward. I could be proven wrong by this. Like you know, somebody could go on a shooting spree in the final episode. For all I know, I never. I've learned not to not to guess what's going to happen on a show like this. But it reminds me very much of the structure of every almost every Mad Men season and almost every Soprano season before it, which is the peak action, the big blowout. Oh my God, I can't believe that action happens in the second to last episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last episode is taking stock in what has happened in the rest of the season. And so that's what I think is happening is we're seeing we're taking stock in what has happened during the rest of not just the season, but the show. That's my theory. I mostly agree. I think especially because we know that the central question, or among the central questions of Mad Men, do you change, right? And so we want to see if people change. We don't want to see the moment that could cause change. We don't want just to see, oh, Burt Cooper died. Bye, right? We want to see, like, did that change, Don? And now we're seeing the ways in which it might have or might not have. The same way with, I'm trying to think, in season one, right? Gypsy and the Hobo is is episode 12. I think so, yeah. Um, so we start to see these like major catastrophic huge things and we want to know did it matter did it stick did those changes have permanent effect or were these temporary gasps you know when what we're seeing 
this season in particular, so many echoes, so many repeats, so many going through these same ideas. So what's different? So so Rachel Menken died. Is that different? Is he different now? Was he different then? What's the change? You know, you have to compare two things together, right? That's what the change is, the difference in those things. We need to see the delta there to, yes. to know what the differences are. And I think... Mad Men loves that idea of the big moment and then the reflection and the big moment and the reflection. And yes, yeah, it's possible yes. we're going to get another, we might even have another big moment or even two big moments. But, you know, it's fun to see that guy's foot get run over, but that's not the most important part of that season. No. Right? And we want to see those, okay, like once the adrenaline wears off and once the sort of excitement of the story wears off for a second, what are we left with? What is tomorrow like? You know, it's mm. not the first time you do something. It's do you ever do it again? And the mundane qualities of the storytelling here are part of what sets Mad Men apart from almost any other show that's that's set during this period of history. Like if you go back to something like the, uh, was that American uh, American Bandstand uh, show? American Dreams. American Dreams, yeah, which um, I, I liked actually pretty well. But that and the NBC miniseries, the 60s, Oy. and its sequel, the <laughs> 70s, and I guess they did the 80s. Did they? It was all like, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just horrifyingly fantasizing <laughs> yeah. that they did. But uh, wouldn't it be it. great if they did? Yeah, it's like we're at a Billy Idol concert now. Anyway, um, it's like a highlights reel, and every major cultural touchstone is visited, and it affects the characters in a big way, and it alters their destiny. But on Mad Men, they push in the other direction. And so many times major things happen like assassinations, riots, mass murders, whatever. And a lot of the characters, they aren't aware that they happen until someone tells them about them. They miss out on them because they're screwing somebody in a hotel room or they're stuck in traffic. Or they're also not in a position to they themselves do much about it. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. oh, JFK got shot. It's like, well, gotta go. Right? right. What am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I you think... still got to pick your kid up at <laughs> yeah. school. You know, I think a lot of ways that the modern American imagination mythologizes and romanticizes the 60s. There was a CNN special that was like the 60s and the sort of gist of it was that time we solved everything. Right? <laughs> it's just like, Ugh! You know, and this yeah. came out during the Bush administration, so there was like a real tough pill to swallow. Right, and right. I think Mad Men has a much more sour or maybe not sour and just accurate idea of yeah there's there are times of tremendous upheaval but you'd be surprised who's doing the upheaving because it's it's not everyone you know right and that the people who are really impacted by this and it takes a long time for those things to begin to feel true and that in the moment it feels like any other thing which is just either your problem or not your problem either it's your (laughs) business or not your business it's something that you're in charge of or you're victimized by and those are the only two choices, and the other choice is just you know floating around. And well, so when and they Sally... mirror they mirror the, uh, the the national story and the personal story on the show very consistently. They've been very very consistent about it all the way through. And on the personal level, it's often a question of it will amaze you. What's the line? How much this didn't how, happen. How much this didn't happen. Is that the line you were thinking? Yeah, about? yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, there's a lot of variations on it in different seasons, different episodes. But this idea of willful forgetting, which is you know, the United States of amnesia, to use a phrase that a lot of writers <laughs> have preferred. It's a nation that's founded on the idea of forgetting your old identity and inventing a new one. But you're still the person that you are. You're yeah, still the I mean, person Don you still are. Turns... No matter how you try to narrativize your life and create and paint a new picture, as as we're told, Don is so good at doing. I did think this week's episode had a bunch of nudges of this isn't so long ago anymore, right? Kevin watching Sesame Street. Yeah, that brings it into living the area of living memory for me. Certainly, like maybe this is silly. I guess I just thought of Butterfinger as being like a newer candy bar. <laughs> maybe that's just how like Bart Simpson commercials worked on me as a kid. So to see it in the vending machine, I was like, oh, huh. It wasn't. 
ooh, what festive old-timey packaging. I was like, that's mm-hmm. pretty similar to what we it see now. It was pretty close, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think there were a lot of little moments like that of, oh, this no longer seems so, you know, archaic or ancient or whatever. Not no. that it seemed ancient, obviously, but, you know, 10 years have passed. Not so the, period yeah. anymore. Yeah. I just want to go on record and say I don't really care what Mad Men does between now and the end of the show. I'm not going to be disappointed by it. I may find some things work better than other things, but I'm not sitting here going, damn it, if they don't give X amount of screen time to this character, that character, and the other character, the show is a failure and I've been betrayed. Like, I just... I just I I'm a little bummed out we didn't get to see... Cut to four see. weeks later and Matt is <laughs> yeah. saying, I'm uh, so betrayed. I'm so sad we didn't get to see Not Sally really. go on the dragon You know what coaster. the show is. Like, the show's been very, very upfront about what kind of a show it is. And I don't think it's done anything out of character in this final stretch. Well, the TV show we're discussing is Mad Men. And it airs Sunday nights at 10 p.m. on AMC. Time for some listener questions. All right, let's do it. We have a question from Jeb. Why do so many networks burn off their shows by doubling them up week after week? Parks and Rec, Last Man on Earth being a couple recent examples of this. Matt, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, there's a lot of reasons to do that, but a lot of times it comes down to not having faith in a show to generate large numbers sight unseen and wanting to kind of get it over with. And and I make it sound like they don't like the show at all, which is not the case. But the fact of the matter is a show like Last Man on Earth or Parks and Rec, which had a great critical following but was never a huge success, shows like that are often best sort of dumped out onto the schedule in concentrated doses so that rather than playing out over mm-hmm. 10 weeks or 13 weeks or 22 weeks or whatever, you're doing it in half the time or a third of the time. Okay. So, you know, so, I think it's more of a practical thing. So will people – do you know if people tune in – they're more likely to tune in for that episode than they would if they did it. Yeah, and I think that's particularly the case in, in half-hour shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in the zone, like once you get into the headspace, it's if another episode comes on, you just watch it. And I can I can say this speaking from experience as somebody who um, started re-watching MASH recently on, net, on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glued to that thing. I'm completely glued sure, to that Sure, shows thing. are their own excellent lead-in, right? There's no better, for a show, no better lead-in for a show than itself if you like it, right? And I'm yeah. kind of a fan of the hour-long comedy anyways. Like Jane the Virgin, I feel yeah. like, is a great one. And I mean, I think I love Jane the Virgin, but I remember when The Office was doing hour-long episodes, and that to me felt like a real Too mistake. Much. I don't think most... Most I think either off. you're an hour-long comedy or you're a half-hour comedy, mm-hmm. and those are both noble pursuits, but rare is the half-hour comedy that's better served by one long episode rather than two episodes back-to-back. Yes, yes. Right. And I think, the, I think the occasions when they do pull off an hour, it's often because they have two two episodes that can function as one hour. They can function mm-hmm. independently. Yeah. Community was ma- absolutely masterful at that. And The Office and 30 Rock had their moments as well, I think. Of back-to-back episodes? Yeah, back-to-back. Things that can function as one narrative unit or that can stand on their own. I mean, I think 30 Rock in particular, you can really have chunks of it that that blend very seamlessly one into the next. Yeah. Obviously, The Office does that, but there were some Office episodes that were meant to be long, and, and that show just doesn't quite have enough stamina, I think. I think streaming has really changed. It's really re- rewired my brain about how I watch shows, how I want to watch shows. Yeah, it also brings out qualities in shows. I think when you watch seven or eight episodes of something in a row, that's going to have a really different feeling than just the one, one at a time. I think the sort of repetition of ideas that is natural in week-to-week shows, that you have to just like a small reminder on a streaming show, 
you don't need that small reminder and it winds up becoming sort of egregiously repetitive at a certain point. Yeah, and there's also this incredible time lapse effect that happens where you're when you're watching, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight episodes strung together, you can actually see the show growing. You can actually <laughs> yeah. see it. Like there was a moment in season one of MASH where all of a sudden it stopped being this straight linear show and they started playing around with time. They yeah. started like going back and forth in time. And and there's one episode where they're doing this incredible cross-cutting that almost reminded me of something out of a Bob Fosse film like a, <laughs> like a cabaret or all that jazz. And it was like, well, this is the part where they started to feel their oats. Yeah. You know, and the Alan Alda takeover was right around the corner. After that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a period where I watched so much Frasier. I was like, he got a new couch? <laughs> <laughs> Too much Frasier, Margaret. <laughs> Time to join the world of the living. Yes. Yikes. Well, that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons. You can follow me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. And you can catch us all here again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>